Before we open God's word, let's pray one more time. Father, we come before you now once more in the name of your son. And as we come to that point, Lord, in this worship service, where we seek to have you speak to us through your word, we ask that you would incline our hearts to yours. Not to any selfish gain, not to any false motives, not to be distracted by things that we're working through in life. That you would open our eyes, that we would behold your wonder, your glory, your excellencies in your word this morning. That as a body of believers, that as a church family, Lord, you would unite our hearts together here to fear your name. That you would satisfy us with your steadfast love and your loving kindness. That you would lead us into all truth. Father, I pray that the words of my mouth would be pleasing in your sight. That much would be made of you. That you, Lord Jesus, would be the centerpiece of this entire time. Holy Spirit, take the truths that are proclaimed and plant them deep in our hearts in an abiding manner that would yield much fruit. And that you would enlarge in our capacity to set our minds on you and to love you. We pray this in the matchless name of Christ. Amen. If you would take your copy of God's word and turn with me to the book of Colossians. We are continuing to slowly walk through this glorious letter that the Apostle Paul wrote. And this morning, we're going to be beginning chapter three of Colossians. And chapter three is a turning point in this letter that Paul wrote. Because in the first two chapters, we have really been seeing the supremacy of Christ. In chapter one, we saw the supremacy of Christ as head of the church. In chapter two, we saw the supremacy of Christ as the Lord of the universe. And now in chapters three and four, we begin to see how we are to respond to the supremacy of Christ, and that is with submission to Christ. Over the last few weeks in chapter two, we saw that we had died with Christ. We see in Colossians 2.20, if you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world. We saw in Colossians 2.12 that we were buried with the Lord Jesus Christ having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised up with him. And there we see where we were also raised into newness of life with Christ. And so as we start chapter three, what we're going to see now is that because we have been raised with the Lord Jesus Christ, we must have our minds focused on Christ and his kingdom. Because we have been raised with Christ, we must have our minds focused on Christ and his kingdom. And so this morning, we're simply going to look at verses one and two. So let me read them for us. Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, 
Keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. The first thing we're seeing here is that we're raised. Raised. That's our first point. Throughout chapter two, we really unpacked that to be raised with Christ was a way of stating that we had died to sin and that by faith we're forgiven and given this new spiritual life in Christ. That to be raised with Christ was to be identified with Christ. And every time I think about this idea of being raised with Christ and identified with Christ, my mind goes to Galatians 2.20. For you have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who lives, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That verse, that truth is going to be unpacked even more next week. But what we're seeing here is that here when Paul says, therefore, if you have been raised with Christ... It's talking about being identified with him by faith. But there's certain things that flow from this. It's not simply that we're identified. What does that mean? Again, we've done a lot of this work in the last few weeks. But I want us just to understand, if you have been raised with Christ, it means that you have a new identity. Because you've been raised with him, you are a new creature. And a new creature means you have new desires, new affections. You're no longer who you were. And that's extremely important as we begin to unpack today's verses. This new identity is what Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone's in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things passed away, behold, the new things come. Not only do you have a new identity, you have new ambitions, new pursuits. Listen to Psalm 42. Psalm 42, verse 2. This is the cry of someone who has been raised with Christ. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My soul thirsts for God. Psalm 42, 2. You see, you were raised with Christ, new identity. You were raised with Christ, new ambitions, new pursuits, new desires. You were raised with Christ also means that you are dead to sin and alive to righteousness. Romans chapter 6. Verses 8 through 11. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. And then you were to go to verses 17 and 18 in Romans 6. But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you obeyed from the heart that pattern of teaching 
to which you were giving, having been freed from sin and became slaves of righteousness. These three points are extremely important to understand that we've been raised with him because it sets the tone for what Paul is about to command. You are a new creature. You have new affections. You are dead to sin. You are alive to righteousness. And when you put that together, it also means that you have a completely new mind. So often we talk about coming to faith in Christ and we talk about the forgiveness of sin. We talk about being declared righteous before God through Christ. And those are glorious truths, but we're not spending enough time these days talking about the fact that that means we have a new mind. Far too many of us want to trust God with our eternal soul, but not with our day-to-day mind, not with our day-to-day thought patterns. But we have been given a new mind in Christ. Listen to what Paul told the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 16. 1 Corinthians 2, 16. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he will direct him? But we have the mind of Christ. It would only make sense that if we've been given the righteousness of Christ, we would have the mind of Christ. The spirit indwells us. The mind of Christ means we can now understand, pursue, and delight in the purposes of God. God didn't simply come and send his son to wipe your slate clean so that you can go on with the same day-to-day thought patterns you had before you came to faith. Christ came and he gave you a new mind so you could think his thoughts after him. Now look again, verse three, verse one there. Therefore, if you have been raised with Christ, Paul's putting a, it's a, it's a hypothetical, theoretical question there. It's a, A a rhetorical device. It's assuming everything that's followed so far. He's pretty much saying because since some translation says since you've been raised with Christ. But in the original languages, it, it really is the if. He's using this rhetorical device. And I just need, think we need to pause and just it's always good to ask ourselves, have I been raised with Christ? Have I? It's so easy to to assume that we're in. But one of the things we're going to see this morning is the evidence that you have been raised with Christ is the way your mind is this evaluate what your mind is set on. So keep that question at the forefront. Have I been raised with Christ? And one of the evidence or one of the ways to, to gauge that is to examine your thought patterns. Now, for those who have been raised with Christ, this is amazingly good news, right? It's, it's good news. It's your hope. It's your confidence. It's your ever-present ever reality day to day. I've been raised with him. That means my resurrection is as certain as his resurrection. He really rose from the dead. So will I. Death no longer rules and reigns over me. It means that Because I've been raised with Christ, I can pursue the godliness of Christ. I've been set free in Christ. So I can freely give myself to these pursuits. I've no longer shackled down by sin. If I've been raised with Christ, that means I'm no longer who I once was. 
And so Paul now says, because you've been raised with Christ, all those things are true, but listen to what you should be giving yourself to. Raised people live a certain way. And he says here in verse one, keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. So if our first point was that we're raised, our second point is just simply seeking. Keep seeking the things above. When he says seeking here, he's not saying trying to find something that you don't have. He's not talking of searching as if it's some hidden treasure. What are you really talking about? Keep seeking. Pursue the things above. But he's really saying, you put it this way, by saying seek the things above, he's saying orient yourselves to the realities of Christ, to the heavenly realities of Christ. Make the orientation of your life one that you are pursuing the heavenly realities of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's interesting, though. Let's go back a little bit. What's the precondition for seeking here? <laughs> he says, keep seeking the things above. But what came before it? If you were raised with Christ. Do you realize what Paul is essentially saying here is that if you're raised, you can seek these things. But if you haven't been raised, you're not. People that have not been raised in newness of life by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ do not seek the heavenly realities. They just don't. This is why seeker churches make no sense. Because they haven't been raised to newness of life. Therefore, they don't seek the things above. The natural man never pursues heavenly realities. They have no desire for it. The idea of a seeker-sensitive church or a seeker-sensitive whatever, that's like saying, hey, I'm going to take a blind person to the Art Institute so you can appreciate the paintings. It's impossible. Only those who have been raised in Christ and are in Christ can seek out these things. That's important for us to, to realize. This changes the way we approach even our personal evangelism and witnessing to people. So often we want to entice people with heavenly realities of what they can have in Christ, but they don't have an appetite. They don't have the ability to seek those things. What they need to hear first and foremost is that they need new life in the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't need to dangle heavenly reality. You'll live forever. That's great. That also, you'll be free from, from, from sickness and pain. You'll be reunited with love. That has nothing to do with seeking what's truly above. And so just as a word here, if we're going to be presenting the gospel to people, don't try to entice people with the things above. They need to be raised to newness of life first. Now, what Paul's saying here. Keep seeking the things above it. It echoes what Jesus said in Matthew 6, 33. In Matthew 6, verse 33, our Lord says, 
But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. Seek first his kingdom, his righteousness. The kingdom of God is the rule and reign of Christ among his people. Jesus was saying, seek the rule and reign of God. And when you do that, everything else will fall into place. Everything else will be added to you. So when Paul says here, keep seeking the things above, it's essentially a call to seek the Lord Jesus Christ, which we're going to see momentarily because he says where Christ is. Keep seeking the things above. Seek his person. Seek the person of Christ. Seek the presence of Christ in your life. Seek his power in your life. Seek his purposes for your life. Seek the pleasures of Christ. What does Christ find delight and pleasure in? Seek out the promises that Christ gives. It's all about him. Because we've been raised with Christ, he must be the focus of our attention in our pursuits. Keep seeking the things above where Christ is. Have you sought Christ this week? Have you sought his person, his presence, his power, his purposes? Has that been the orientation of your, of your person this week? Again, not again, think I'm saying seeking him, not the things he could do for you. Distinction here. Very important distinction. Keep seeking the things above where Christ is. Have you had an upward focused pursuit in life? And he says, keep seeking. Not start seeking, keep. It's this ongoing action. This is what you ought to be doing and keep on doing. It's extremely convicting for me. Because I recognize there is a lot of time in my week where I'm not. Now, seeking the things above doesn't mean you neglect the things here on earth. We'll see that momentarily in a bit. But it should be, this pursuit of the things above should be animating the things that happen here on earth. You can seek the things above while still doing the responsibilities you have here on earth. As a matter of fact, that's the only way to do them. And so we seek the things above, he says, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. We're going to linger here for a few minutes. Where Christ is. Christ is above, but he's not just walking around in heaven. He's specifically somewhere. He says that he's at the right hand of God. 
Now, a little Bible study tip. When you're reading your New Testament and you see God, it's usually a reference to the Father. So every member of the Trinity is usually distinguished in the New Testament. So they'll say Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ. When he says God, it's usually a reference to the Father and the Spirit, what we call the Spirit. So the Lord Jesus Christ, God the Son, is seated at the right hand of God the Father here. Now, right hand is extremely, extremely important. When it says that Christ is seated at the right hand, what he's saying is that Christ is seated in a position of power and of authority. It's also a claim to the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ, that he is God, that he is equal to the Father. To say that he is seated at the right hand of God, Paul is under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is making it abundantly clear that Jesus Christ is king and there is no other. We've seen how these false teachers uh, that were trying to get into the Colossian church were trying to tell these believers to, to worship the angelic host, to focus their minds. And by Paul saying that Christ is seated at the right hand of God, he is saying that Christ has supremacy over that in the, all the angelic host that he is above it all. Why would you go worshiping any of these things when Christ is the one in power and in authority? So let's look at some passages talking about this right hand and what this means. Turn with me to Psalm 110. Psalm 110, verse 1. Yahweh says to my, my Lord. Now this is important. David's writing this psalm. David is king of Israel. David, by saying this, is they're saying there's one over him that's his Lord. Yahweh says to my Lord, sit at my right hand. Until I put your enemies as a footstool for your feet. So the one who is at the right hand of God, which you are seeing as the Lord Jesus Christ, has supremacy reign in victory over all his enemies. They are his footstool. And this is King David saying it. Psalm 110 verse 1. If you're writing in your Bible, you can just write Jesus right there. Because that's who it's speaking of. This is picked up later on in the book of Hebrews. This is quoted. But turn with to, let's turn to Ephesians chapter 1 also. In Ephesians chapter 1, look at verses 20 through 23 with me. Ephesians 1, 20 through 23. Which he worked in Christ by raising him from the dead and seating him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all, all things to the church, which is his body to the fullness of him who fills all in all. 
the Lord Jesus, seated at the right hand, far above all rule, authority, dominion, Jesus is the supreme king. Jesus is, and he said, keep seeking the things above. In a time like right now in our culture where there are rumors of war, right? There's rumors of, even here in America, national instability, economic ruin, right? The values, ethics, and morals of the country seeming as if they're just unraveling. Is there any greater thing to set our mind to, be, to seek than the fact that Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father? With all power and authority over all of it? Can, and this is why it's so important. Seeking these things is what gives us peace in a world that makes no sense. It was true for Paul and the Colossians. It's true for us today. Keep seeking the things above so that you are not weighed down by the cares of the world. Where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. First Peter, go to First Peter chapter 3. First Peter chapter 3, verse 22. Who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven, after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. Hello, false teachers in Colossae. Who's in subjection to Christ? The angels are. The angels are. He's at the right hand of the Father. Christ's position is our peace. Anytime there are problems in the world we live in, we should be seeking him who is above at the right hand. The fact that he's at the right hand can always serve as an anchor to remind you, don't worry, he's in control. But notice, he's at the right, it says that he's seated at the right hand. The fact that Jesus is seated at the right hand is important because it's reminding us that his work is finished. Just as in Genesis, it said that he got rested on the seventh day, so Jesus is now seated at the right hand. Look at Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 tells us, who is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power, who having accomplished cleansing for sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And if you were to jump ahead to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 12, Hebrews 10, 12, but he, speaking of Christ, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. It 
It is finished. He said it on the cross. There's nothing more to be done. There's nothing more you and I need to do. Jesus has conquered death. He has conquered sin. He has conquered Satan. His people are secure. The reason we have so much trouble and anxiety is because we are not seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Brothers and sisters, Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ, is the centerpiece of heaven. Paul is saying, keep seeking the things above. When we get up there and we're there with him, what do you think you're going to be seeking and fixing your gaze upon? The Lord Jesus Christ. He is the centerpiece. He is the focus. Therefore, Jesus should be the magnet of our thoughts. Everything we think, say, do, and desire should be being attracted into Christ. Everything that needs to be done for you as a child of God has been done because he's seated. Everything that's going on in the world, he's at the right hand. He's in control. And as he seats the, is seated there, having completed his work at the right hand of the Father, don't think he's bored because you know what he's doing? He's interceding on your behalf. Listen to Romans chapter 8, verse 34. Romans chapter 8, verse 34. Well, let's do 30, verse 33 starting. Romans 8, 33 and 34. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. So the King Jesus who is supreme overall, whose enemies are his footstool, who has done everything needed to conquer death, sin, Satan, is interceding for you. As we pray, the Spirit of God brings our prayers to Christ. Christ brings our prayers to the Father. He intercedes on our behalf. The supreme Christ is working on our behalf every minute of every day. We've prayed twice in this service. Those prayers were brought to the Son by the Spirit who intercedes on our behalf to the Father. Why wouldn't we be seeking those things? Why would we not be seeking those heavenly realities of Christ? See, spiritual growth comes from Christ. Therefore, our focus in life ought to be on who he is, where he is, and what he's doing. And to go one step further, which my brain can't understand, all of that that's true of Christ, and somehow I'm also united with him by faith. We'll see next week our life is hidden with his. We don't need to be fearful people. He's at the right hand. He's seated, so we don't need to do anything to bring deliverance for ourselves. He's done it all in his priestly office. But there's one more thing about Jesus being seated at the right hand and why we should be seeking it. 
because that's where the human human longing and human desire is fulfilled. It isn't just a position of power. It isn't just a position of authority. It isn't just his intercession. It's also the place where the deepest desires of the human being can be fulfilled. Turn with me to Psalm 1611. Psalm 1611, you will make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. In your right hand, there are pleasures forever. At the right hand of Yahweh is Christ. And at that right hand are pleasures forevermore. Your deepest desires for pleasure, fulfillment, happiness, joy are found in Christ. Therefore, for us to seek the things above, the heavenly realities of Christ, is where you find true satisfaction for the human soul. This is not a burdensome command of Paul. If you've been raised, keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. It is a loving command that Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is giving us. Because it's when we seek the things above where Jesus is seated at the right hand of God, we are reminded that at the right, at the right hand, we have salvation, we have security and satisfaction. But let's look at verse two now. Set your mind on things above not on things that are on earth. Here's a question I want you to consider. Seven seconds here of silence after the question, let you really linger for a moment. Where does your mind go when you have free time? Where does your mind go when you have free time? Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever thought about your thoughts? Everybody's mind goes somewhere. Talking to my buddy yesterday. Talking about the sermon. He's a fellow preacher. We try to encourage each other the night before. So I mentioned I was asking that question. He got real quiet. I'm like, why'd you get quiet? He's like, well, my mind all day has been going to the fact that Tom Brady's retiring. <laughs> He's like, so I feel really convicted right now. Oh, Thomas. <laughs> honest. You know, my mind goes to lots of other places at times. But it's because our mind tends to go to other things than the things that are above that Paul now says, set your mind on things above, not on things that are on the earth. See, this word to set means to think, to understand, to ponder, to consider deeply, anchor your mind here. It's not to have a passing thought 
but a deliberate action of the mind to seek understanding. Paul's saying, have your mind preoccupied with these things. Have your will, your personhood, the orientation of your life rooted here. Notice in verse 1, he said to seek, and in verse 2, he's saying to set. You know, that's important. I know lots of good brothers and sisters in Christ who are always seeking but never setting. Mm -hmm. Seeking a new piece of biblical truth. Wow, that was really cool. What's new? What's next? What's next? What's next? Always seeking, seeking good things things in Christ. But never really slowing down and setting their mind on it to consider it, to ponder it, to chew on it, and then to have it take up residence so they have a preoccupation with it. So Paul tells to set your mind here now. We need to slow it. I think especially living in the West, we're always go, go, go. There's always a new thing, a new update, a new model of your phone, a new thing to do, a new email. We're always seeking out the new. And so that conditions us spiritually to never really set ourselves on the things above. We constantly are seeking because we want to be entertained. But he says, set your mind on things above. And again, this is really important. He says, set your mind, not set your feelings on things above. Not seek what's going to be the most emotionally gratifying. But to set your mind, that part of you can, that can deeply consider and process, set your mind on those things above. You know, it's interesting because there's two extremes that seem to be at play. Hyper-intellectualism and hyper-emotionalism in the church. Some have an unhealthy preoccupation with knowledge. Guilty. That's where I default. Some have an unhealthy preoccupation with, I just feel God's love in my life. But what happens when you don't? And so Paul is telling you, set your mind. The mind is what processes, understanding, and holds on to truth. The heart is wicked and deceitful above all things. So if we don't set our mind, then our heart is going to run wild like an unbridled Mustang. And so the mind must be set on because the mind can then govern us when the flesh and the heart and everything wants to run rampant. And again, he's saying, set your mind. This also means you're not passive. You have work to do. People say, I don't know, my mind just runs off to these places. No, it doesn't just run off. It doesn't. You run off. Your mind's not running off. You're not some just victim or some passive individual here. You determine your thought patterns 
you determine what your mind will set up. A, a, a stray thought can come flying into your, into your mind, sure. But you choose whether or not your mind settles on it. You choose whether or not your mind will combat that stray thought with truth. You're making decisions. You're not passive. So Paul is commanding, set your mind on things above. You have decisions to make. And so we saw that the things above were the things of Christ, his person, his power, his presence, his his purposes. But with that, there's also an ethic that comes with it. As we think of Christ, we should also think about the heart of Christ, the ethic of Christ. And so Philippians 4.8 tells us, right? If Christ animates all we do, then how should we be thinking about the things in the day-to-day? Philippians 4.8 says, whatever is true, whatever is dignified, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, consider these things. That should be a good rubric, framework, prism by which you view the day-to-day. Should I watch that thing? I don't know. Is it true? Is it dignified, right, pure, lovely, commendable, excellence, worthy of praise? No, then that doesn't have Christ at it. Should I listen to that thing? Same prism. Should I go to that thing? Same prism. Should I engage in that conversation? And so forth. Should I make that decision? Philippians 4.8 tells us that's how he calls it. That's the ethic when you have the mind of Christ. Look at Philippians 4.7. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Your mind is guarded in Christ Jesus when you choose to walk in the mind of Christ that's been given to you by the Holy Spirit. And so when you set your mind on things above, when you set your mind on Christ, when you have this framework of the ethic of heaven at work, a beautiful thing happens. There's certain fruit that starts to come about in your life when you set your mind on things above. And it's found in Romans 12. Listen to Romans 12, verse 2. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may approve what the will of God is, that which is good, pleasing, and perfect. When you set your mind on the things, when you seek the things above and set your mind on the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God, when you have the ethic of heaven as a prism by which you evaluate, all of a sudden you will be able to progressively more and more discern God's will. Discern what is good what is pleasing, and what is perfect. The fruit of the mind that is set on Christ, who is at the right hand of God, is that your mind is renewed, approved, the will of God, and discerning. But none of that can be done without Scripture. None of that can be done without Scripture. Things, The things above do not come naturally to anyone. If you're left to yourself 10 out of 10 times, you're going to pursue the things on earth. This is why Paul gives the command, set your mind on things above. He knows that we must discipline our minds for the, for the things of Christ. 
He goes on there in verse two. The things above, not the things that are on earth. You realize before the Lord Jesus saved you and gave you newness of life in himself, your mind was only set on the things of the world. That's it. The things on earth. The values and the pursuits of the world. Some are good, some are bad, sure. But whether good or bad, they're all passing away. The only thing that's not passing away are the things above. In 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17, we read, Do not love the things, do not love the world, nor the things of the in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world, and the world is passing away, and also its lusts. But the one who does the will of God abides forever. None of it's going to last. None of it. Guess where the false teachers of Paul's day are? Gone. All those hot-button cultural issues that maybe the Colossians are worried about? Guess where those are? Gone. The biggest threats of the church back then, Neronian persecution, Nero's gone. Critical race theory will be gone. The whole craziness of social justice and sexual revolution that we're seeing, that's going to be gone one day. He's seated at the right hand. He has rule over it. Guess what's going to remain? The Lord Jesus Christ, his kingdom, and his people. You know, I've heard, we've probably, you've probably heard this wrong-headed statement. Don't be so heavenly-minded that you're no earthly good. That's just dumb. And it's dumb because the reality is, the reason we're no earthly good is because we're not heavenly minded enough. We're too preoccupied with this life. We're too preoccupied with the earthly good because the only way to do earthly good is to bring down the heavenly realities of Christ to the people. And the only way you're going to bring down heavenly realities to the people is by having a mind that is seeking and set on the things that are above. And so as a, as a church, we need to know that a raised up life will produce raised up thoughts. That when your mind is seeking and set on the things above, you are protected from the world. Setting your mind on the things that are above, it's kind of like the, the, the protection system of your home, of your, of your life. Because if garbage comes in, garbage comes out, right? In this command to set your mind on the things above, it's not, Paul's not saying to pursue mere intellectual head knowledge. That's why he said the, the whole setting, not just seeking, but setting, because he wanted to produce godly living. What your mind is filled with, your life will reflect. What your mind is filled with, your life will reflect. A mind that is set on the things above will have a life reflecting the things above. A mind that is not will not reflect the things above. And so another question to ask ourselves, what is your mind pursuing and pondering on? What is it seeking and setting itself on? 
Or you can think of this way. What are you feeding your mind? <clears throat> and I just thought of Psalm 119 verses 9 through 11. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart, I seek you. Let me not wander from your commands. I have stored your word in my heart that I may not sin against you, right? That verse is telling us, right? Mind in the New Testament is often heart in the Old Testament. It's saying, when you are filled with the word of God, you're not gonna be so easy to slip and fall slip, stumble and pursue sin. So what are you feeding it? We're too busy thinking more about our marriages, our children and our grandchildren than Christ. We're too busy thinking about that work project or that client than on Christ. We're too busy thinking about all the needs that need to get done at home rather than Christ. We're too busy thinking about balancing the checkbook and paying the bills than we are on Christ. We're too busy thinking about having fun with friends than on Christ. And notice, none of those things are necessarily bad. But they're never supposed to be ultimate and they're never supposed to occupy more space in your mind than the Lord Jesus Christ does. And here's the amazing thing. When we seek and set our minds on things above, the marriage, the kids, the grandkids, the work projects, the clients, the things at home, the friends, all of those can be appreciated and handled in their proper place and in their proper way. Because despite what people say, when we're heavenly minded is when we're truly earthly good. So we need to set our mind on the, th we need to be seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. And we need to set our minds on the things above. So let me close with this. A few years ago, I found this piece. It was written, the author's unknown, but I thought it was so fitting. Satan called a worldwide convention of demons. In his opening address, he said, we cannot keep Christians from going to church. We cannot keep them from reading their Bibles and knowing the truth. We can't even keep them from forming intimate relationships with their Savior. Once they gain that connection with Jesus, our power over them is broken. So let them go to their churches. Let them have their covered dish dinners. Let's steal their time. So they don't have time to develop a relationship with Jesus Christ. This is what I want you to do, said the devil. Distract them from gaining hold of their Savior and maintaining that vital connection throughout their day. How shall we do this? The demon shouted. Keep them busy in the non-essentials of life and invent innumerable schemes to occupy their minds. He answered them. Tempt them to spend, spend, spend and borrow, borrow, borrow. Persuade the wives to go to work for long hours and the husbands to work six to seven days each week, 10 to 12 hours a day so they can afford their empty lifestyles. Keep them from spending time with their children as their families fragment soon will their homes offer no escape from the pressures of work. Overstimulate their minds so they cannot hear that still small voice. Entice them to play the radio or cassette player whenever they drive to keep the DV, TV, VCR, CDs, and their PCs going constantly in their home and see to it that every store and restaurant in the world plays non-biblical music constantly. This will jam their minds and break that union with Christ. Fill the coffee tables with magazines and newspapers. Pound their minds with news 24 hours a day. Invade their driving moments with billboards. Flood their mailboxes with junk mail, mail order catalogs, sweepstakes, and every kind of newsletter and promotional offering free products, services, and false hopes. 
Give them Santa Claus to distract them from teaching their children the real meaning of Christmas. Give them an Easter bunny so they won't talk about his resurrection and power over sin and death. Even in their recreation, let them be excessive. Have them return from their recreation exhausted. Even too busy to go out in nature and reflect on God's creation. Send them to amusement parks, sporting events, plays, concerts, and movies instead. Keep them busy, busy, busy. And, then, and when they meet for spiritual fellowship, involve them in gossip and small talk so that they can leave with troubled consciences. Crowd their lives at so many good causes, they have no time to seek power from Jesus. Soon they'll be working in their own strength, sacrificing their health and family for the, for the good of the cause. It will work. It will work. It was quite a plan. The demons went eagerly to their assignments, causing Christians everywhere to get busier and more rushed, going here and there, having little time for God, families, and friends, having no time to tell others about the power of Jesus to change lives. I guess the question is, has the devil been successful at his scheme? You be the judge. Does busy mean being under Satan's yoke? End quote. Brothers and sisters, we've been raised with Christ. We've been given the Holy Spirit. And so our minds must be focused on Christ and things above. The world and Satan will seek to keep us busy so that we cannot be seeking and setting. And to that, I say, let him try. Because we've been given the word, we've been given the spirit. And as a church, we will keep pushing forward in this way. Let's pray. Father, we come before you now in the name of Christ once more. We thank you that you have given us the mind of Christ and you have given us your Holy Spirit. We have no reason, no excuse to not be seeking the things above and setting our mind on the things above. Father, I confess that I have not sought and set my mind as I ought to this week, even this morning. I thank you that that is forgiven through the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I pray now, Lord, for myself and on behalf of all of us here at church this morning, that you would renew our minds once more, that what we have heard here in your word has brought about that renewing, cleansing process, and that you will strengthen us with your glorious might by your Holy Spirit and your Holy Word, that we would be men and women known for seeking and setting our mind of the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. And we will do this in and through Scripture. I thank you, Father, this morning for that reminder. I thank you for the command. I thank you for the ability for us to do this because you've made it all possible. We pray these things in Jesus' glorious name. Amen.